I'm Tim Ritter. I'm Nate Hansen. We're almost heretical. And this is how the Bible works. Okay, so we've looked at copy and pasting. We've looked at layering. And these are a couple different tactics that whoever edited and put together the Bible uses um, as kind of strategies to to craft this thing. Uh, Are there any others or like where should we look next? Yeah, this episode we're going to look at seams. Uh, And what I mean by that is we're going to zoom way out and look at the Bible as a whole and see how uh, various texts uh, and portions of texts have been stitched uh, together to make it a whole. In the metaphor of a mosaic, it's actually crucial to understand where and how the different pieces have been arranged together, that the meaning is in the stitching. And so what we're going to look at is some of the big picture, uh, the biggest seams running through the Bible, and uh, and sort of pay attention to how uh, those work, both right. in Old and New Testament. Okay, so give me an example of, of this, like the stitching and the overall seams. Yeah, so... Some of you out there may be familiar with the term uh, canonical seams. Have you heard of that before, Nate? Uh, I mean, I've heard both of those words before, but not together. (laughs) Nice. Yeah, so uh, we'll look at those. These are the two biggest places uh, where where stitching has happened. but before, so here's here's why this is worth understanding a piece of it. Uh, we're used to reading front to back, cover to cover via book technology. And a part of this How the Bible Works series will be learning to retrain our brains to to view the Bible as a product of a very different kind of literary technology. So we don't think about books as technology. You know what I mean? Like even hearing that word, I heard sometime, I heard one time someone say like um, the technology of the clock or something. And I was like, wow, I don't think of whatever was like around when you were born doesn't seem like technology. Technology seems like anything that came kind of after you were born. You know what I mean? We are just so used to it. Yeah, I get. I think I get what you're saying. It's like the Kindle or an e-reader or, you know, various, you know, reading something on your iPhone. Uh, that feels like a new technology. But what's funny is when it comes to literature, writing, stories, narratives, books, all of those new technologies are actually just affirming the book technology. We still basically write everything in a top to bottom, left to right, front to back, chronological and beginning to end linear structure of writing. We'll get into soon trying to see how actually uh, the Bible is is not linear, and it takes a really really intentional effort for us to to try to even think non-linearly. Uh, but here we'll see is so they didn't have books, right? The these texts, when they were written, were written on scrolls, which you would roll out, and it'd be one long sheet of papyrus or paper or a skin. And you could actually see the entire text, if you unfolded it all, at, at one time. It'd be kind of like a poster. Uh, so instead of having, you know, you see one page, then the back of that page, then the next page, the back of that page, you'd literally be able to see the entire text on one 
sheet. Or the reason we have like first and second Samuel or first and second Kings is because they couldn't fit it on one scroll. So they just had to put it on two scrolls. It's the same. It's one cohesive literary text that was too big for one scroll. So the scrolls don't bind together. I mean this like physically. Like if you want to compile uh, scrolls, they're not flat. You don't just go and staple, you know, scroll one to scroll B. Uh, and like we were saying, most people didn't have access to these scrolls, right? The scribes and the, and the synagogues would possess these scrolls and take precious care of them. But most people would be hearing these uh, texts or stories or psalms and memorizing them. And then you could basically play them back in your head. Uh, so so here's the, the piece we're going to cover in this episode is in order to arrange these texts together, assuming at, at this point right now that the texts are roughly in their final form, to arrange one text to the other, right? We have in our Bible, it's just Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and you just turn the last page of Genesis, right? And you open up the first page of Leviticus. They're bound physically in one book uh, next to each other, right? But it, with scroll technology, you can't do that. Mm. And so this is really important. The, the thing that bound them into a cohesive arranged whole was within the text themselves. In other words, it was a literary binding or literary stitching that would attach texts so that if you're reading one scroll or if you're listening to someone read a scroll aloud, you would actually hear words or phrases or sentences that would make you mentally connect that text to another piece of text so that the stitching isn't physical, it's actually literary, and then it becomes a part of the text itself. I'm trying to think of an analogy, but there really isn't a good one, right? <laughs> like that that's just so foreign to anything we have or we do. Because even in storytelling, I guess I do that a little bit with Lucy when I'm telling her stories. <laughs> like she knows that the story goes with like the other story because there's like a, a similar character or there's a similar like situations that I, I put the different characters in from one story to the next. But like there's really nothing like this that we do. Yeah, I think the closest analogy, uh, maybe there are two actually. Uh, one is film, and the other is music. And uh, and the film one, uh, once again, uh, I got to give credit to Tim Mackey, who's uh, been one of my really formative teachers. And I took a seminar with him on the Book of Isaiah or the Scroll of Isaiah, and uh, and he actually had us watch a segment. Basically, a YouTube video that someone had compiled of going through the new Star Wars movies. So, Force Awakens is that what it's called, and uh, maybe one of the other ones, and and showing how many clips of video footage had been intentionally designed to overlap visually with scenes from the original Star Wars movies. So you had like scenes with the Death Star in the background in the top right corner showing up in both films. You had sort of a throwback to the Princess Leia scene, even with like the Princess Leia hairdo. Uh, then you had like a scene that was sort of a throwback to Luke 
uh, in the, was it Starfighter or whatever it's called? Um, basically, what we went through, it was like five minutes of film showing how the new movies had intentionally designed scenes modeled after the old movies, j- even though most of us don't notice them all, just to get our minds recollecting the original Star Wars movies and to kind of feel like we're back in that original Star Wars world. Uh, So they had visually stitched footage together, created that footage, and then uh, created it as a form of uh, copying or or imitation uh, in order to creatively stitch the two together. So you can watch the movie like I did not notice any of those things. Uh, Or if you're a real nerd... uh, you can be like the guy who made this YouTube video and go look for every single one of them. And then every time you see one of those overlaps, it kind of gets you thinking about in what ways is this similar? In what ways is this different from the original? What's happening? Is there some part of the original that's supposed to be uh, being restarted or, uh, or rebooted or even uh, changed and critiqued in this uh, second, second piece? Uh, So there's in film, we can do that. And then the other one, uh, I think it was in music, you can have some sounds, right? Some pieces, some uh, allusions to other songs, not necessarily like mashups, but more subtle allusions where, uh, you know, you'll maybe have a beat or a, a string section or something uh, that is sort of an echo uh, to another song. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, I, I hear those all the time. I can't think of like an example right now, but like, I feel like I hear those all the time and, um, there's like the full on like sampling where you put that line from that one person's song from the nineties into your song in 2018 or whatever that's sampling. But there's also these, I see what you're saying. Like you hear that little melody, the one line of the melody in, in there, or, um, that one line from the song in there and it kind of stitches it together. Yeah. Right. So there's a reason why neither of those examples are in books or, or literature. And that is, I think, because we're so attuned to think about words and texts in book form that we don't do that uh, with with books or with literature. Uh, we we use other forms of connection like quotations, right? Citation uh, is, is just sort of the default mode. Uh, or like we see in our modern Bibles, you literally just staple them together or glue them together and bind them into one uh, cohesive book. So what the redactors, whoever these people were, who compiled and arranged the various texts of the Hebrew Bible, what they did was they also either edited or added or some combination of both pieces to Uh, beginnings and endings of those texts in order to stitch them together. So, okay, do you know that the the Hebrew Bible is broken into three different sets of texts? Uh, Yeah, if you tell me the names of them, I think I know that. Weren't they called different things? Yeah, so it's the Torah, which is uh, also known as the the Pentateuch. It's the first five books. Then the Nevi'im, which is just Hebrew for prophets. And then the Ketuvim, which is Hebrew for the writings. And that spells out Tanakh, right? Just like the letters, right? Yeah, Tanakh is basically just an, an acronym for uh, for Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, uh, for the first 
consonants uh, of those words. So uh, it's important we can get into some of the details later. Our Old Testaments in uh, in modern Protestant Bibles does not follow the exact ordering. There are parts where it's similar. For instance, uh, the Torah and the Pentateuch are exactly the same. Um, but then there are some places where it's different. And part of <laughs> what that has done is it's made it harder for us to see these seams because the texts that were stitched together are no longer next to each other in our uh, in our books. So, so here's the thing. So all three of those books or we shouldn't call them books, all three of these collections of scrolls, which were considered to be sort of a part of a, a micro library, those three collections are stitched together in what scholars call canonical seams. And then what we'll see is the f- very first text of the first collection, which is Genesis, and the last text of the last collection, which is not Malachi, which is how our Bibles uh, have it, but was... Isn't it like Second Chronicles? Yes. It was uh, the scroll of, of Chronicles, or the, the second scroll, uh, Second Chronicles. And the end of Second Chronicles, which we touched on in a, in a previous episode, uh, offers a kind of dramatic ellipses a dot 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 which is a conclusion but it's more of a conclusion that sort of passes uh, the baton forward so so why do we order them like this then isn't this just like totally missing the whole point of what the bible is to order them differently you know i actually thought that for a while and now we'll actually see today i i understand uh why the early christians considered rearranging i i get it now uh, and we'll we'll point that out soon so here's the deal so genesis 1 through 11 is an introduction to the entire rest of the Hebrew Bible. And within that, I think you can make the case that Genesis 1 through 3 is a sort of epilogue even to that introduction. Uh, Most scholars, and I think this makes pretty clear sense, uh, believe that whoever did this final redaction, right, whoever made the, the final mosaic, wrote Genesis 1 through 11. You have various reasons for that. One of them is the fact that Adam is not mentioned in the entire rest of the Hebrew Bible. So if this story of Adam and, and Eve, the story of uh, the Garden of Eden and, and creation, was actually one of the first ever written texts, it's almost guaranteed that later texts would be in conversation with it, right? Right. So um, there's a, a good chance, basically, Genesis 1 through 11 is written as an introduction. And thematically, that makes a lot of sense. And functionally, uh, that makes a lot of sense. And then the book of Chronicles acts as a kind of conclusion. So then in between, and I know this can get, <laughs> you can get lost if you're not familiar with all the order of the books and stuff. Then in between, we have these two seams. So let's look at the first seam. So the last book of the first collection, the Torah, is the book of Deuteronomy. And then the first book of the next collection, the prophets, is the book of Joshua. So there are a few different ways that Deuteronomy 34, and I guess we should remind ourselves this, that 
there were no chapter numbers and no verse numbers in the Hebrew Bible or in the, the New Testament. We have added those in order to be able to talk about the Bible with each other since we don't have the thing memorized, right? We have to be able to point to a verse to index stuff, but the, none of those things were there. Was there a map section? Uh. hi friends nate here real quick if you have any questions for this series or any other episodes that we've done you can ask those at almostheretical.com and then we're so thankful that a number of you help support our show and if you want to do that as well you can go to almostheretical.com and click on the give button in the top right hand corner hey brian do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist Oh, Troy, you know that I was, because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. So what we'll see is there are a lot of different forms of stitching and techniques and strategies that were used to stitch things together. Some are thematic, some are with words and word plays, some are with sentence structures. So the first thing we'll see is at the end of Deuteronomy, you have this awkward section where it's clearly not being written in the voice of Moses, right? It's like verse 10, it says, Since then no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Clearly, that's not Moses writing that, right? Then verse 12, For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in sight of all Israel. So most of the rest of the Torah is written, at least, as if it is from the perspective of Moses. And so what seems pretty clear is that these Verses on the end of Deuteronomy 34 are likely later additions that are even admitting to coming from a later time, right? That verse, verse 10, that no prophet like Moses has been around even all the way up until today. It's like telling you (laughs) that whoever's writing that line is not speaking from even the time of Moses, but from well after that, right? It's not trying to hide the stitching. It's actually trying to admit that it's there. Right. So Deuteronomy 34, or the book of Deuteronomy, and the entire collection of the Torah closes with Moses' death, right? And then what we see is that in Joshua 1, Moses' death is repeated, and then Joshua at Joshua is emphasized as the new Moses. So you basically have this transition in character that that serves to transition the books where Moses leaves and Joshua begins. But the first few verses and last few verses repeat the part about Moses dying to, to really bind these two together. 
And then there's a second piece where Joshua 1 focuses on Joshua's responsibility to keep the book of the law, which is the book that we just finished reading, right, in the Torah. That's what it is. So there's this section section where literally the, the main character in this first chapter of this next text, the, the book of Joshua, is himself bound to the very set of texts that we just finished reading. Does that make sense? Yeah, it kind of feels like um, the the BBC, like Sherlock. Uh, you probably haven't seen that, but it's an amazing show. And it... Uh, at the beginning of an of a episode, like they're like three episode seasons, and they come out like every two years. It's really epic. But they uh, at the beginning of the next season, let's say like Sherlock dies or something, or it's supposedly he dies or whatever. They'll begin the next season, and they're at like the funeral again or something like that, or they're at the graveside. It connects those two seasons together. Um, without like saying previously on Sherlock. Yeah. And there, there are even further details here where we could see where it's connected, right? Deuteronomy ends with Moses repeating, I'm presenting this before you choose life or choose death, right? Like listen and obey or, or don't. And that's exactly what's put to, to Joshua. It's like in, in Joshua one. So Joshua is presented as almost the audience or the ideal audience member that had just been reading Deuteronomy. So they're stitched together in in this way. And then, so we go to the end of this collection of books, the end of the prophets. And the last book of the prophets is Malachi. And a lot of scholars will point out that it seems pretty obvious that the the book of Malachi actually ends in either verse two or three of, of chapter four in terms of the original text written by Malachi. Uh, And then you have either verses three through six or four through six uh, tacked on at the end uh, to create, you know, like one side of a zipper that's going to be able to uh, zip close to uh, another section of texts. And this itself, this side of the zipper, harkens back to Joshua 1 and the first scene. So it adds... Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. It's basically repeating the end of Deuteronomy, which is like, hey, listen to all this stuff. And then the beginning of Joshua is like, hey, Joshua, listen to all this stuff. Now Malachi ends kind of randomly by saying, hey, listen to all this, the the original Torah. And and then it has this line, which we'll see soon in verse five. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord. So then what you get is Malachi ending with sort of a a hearkening back to uh, Deuteronomy and Joshua in the first scene. And where Malachi is going to connect is the beginning of the writings and the beginning of or the first scroll within the writings is the Psalms. And so Psalm 1, then, is the other side of the zipper to Malachi 4. And what do you see in Psalm 1? It's this song of blessing on the one who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. So you have this same figure who's like the ideal Torah observer, 
placed in Psalm 1. You have that figure placed at the end of Malachi 4. You have that figure placed in Joshua 1 as Joshua. And you have that figure placed at the end of Deuteronomy 34. So what that does, just in this, these simple repetitions of mo- motifs and phrases and the, the reference to the Torah, is, is a double stitching that has, has now enabled us to see these collections as having beginnings and endings that connect them to the other collections. And a little detail is that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 actually doubly function as an introduction both to the book of the Psalms and to the entire section of writings. So by stitching Psalm 1 to the prophets, it stitched the entire section of writings uh, to the prophets. So we're just noticing some of the the mechanisms here, but basically this is the beginning of how you take a, a collection of texts and you start to make it tell a kind of cohesive story or to paint a, a grander mosaic portrait, right? Is this is how they're actually being arranged. To us, it's side by side. Uh, I want to say that they're arranged side by side, but it, it isn't linear like that, right? They're just being connected uh, in terms of meaning and, and theme uh, that sort of follows a chronological beginning to end, but not entirely. Are you tracking? I, I think so. I mean, it, it's kind of like really hard to keep in your head, I think. But basically, there's these three chunks. The Old Testament is kind of broken down into three chunks of collections of books. And at the end and beginning of each of those sections, so there's what? There's essentially two different places where those three chunks would meet, right? Between the first and the second, and between the second and the third. The end of the first and the beginning of the second are stitched together, and you just kind of explained some of those stitchings that we see on either side. And then the end of the second and the beginning of the third are stitched together, and we explained some of those stitchings. I know that you were saying like even the beginning of the second is kind of stitching to the the third, um, but basically that's like that's kind of roughly what's happening there. Yeah, it's not that it's stitching to the third. The fact that it's using the same stitching technique of this shared motif, I think helps us to see that these are seams, right? It's like, uh, you know, I mentioned a zipper as an analogy. It's like zippers were used on both. Therefore, we can tell that the whole thing is arranged collectively together, if that makes sense. It's not like one person wanted the first collection and the second collection to be arranged, and then somebody else thought the second collection and the third collection should be Uh, connected. Clearly, this is one cohesive project to collect them all together into what we call a canon. So that's why these are called canonical seams. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I guess uh, why, why do you think this is important to understand and what does this change, I guess? Yeah. I think I'm still asking that question in some sense. Uh, One is that the New Testament writers and the early Christians who eventually arranged and compiled what we now call the New Testament texts into a set of texts and then connected the New Testament to what we now call the Old Testament, uh, even giving them those titles, that they were all tracking with this and doing this as well. So, for instance, you can actually see there are various uh, testamental seams where 
the Gospels are intentionally written to connect themselves to the end of the Tanakh. Um, so Matthew and Luke do this with genealogies. Genealogies are another stitching device that function like a zipper. And the gospel writers knew that. And so by putting genealogies at the beginning of the gospels of Matthew and Luke, it's their way of saying, this is one side of a zipper that is meant to be attached to other texts. What other texts? The collection of the Hebrew Bible. So we can't understand Jesus and what they're trying to tell us, the gospel writers, unless we understand what's going on with this stitching in the Old Testament. Yeah, and even that the that the texts that we have in the New Testament were intentionally connected literarily uh, to the Old. You know, another one is like in, in Luke. Uh, remember I said that, that Chronicles ends with this kind of dramatic... Uh, ellipses where it talks about some figure going up to the temple in Jerusalem and it kind of leaves us wondering like who that will be well it's significant then that in the opening chapters of Luke he puts in two stories of first baby Jesus being presented at the temple and then Jesus as a young child a 12 year old going and hanging out at the temple that that is a literary way for Luke to make the case that Jesus is the figure that the Hebrew Bible was trying to point beyond itself to. So one sense is just understanding literarily how these things are connected. There's there's another really interesting one in that uh, scholars have pointed out that the last three chapters of the book of Revelation mirror the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. So in the first three chapters of Genesis, you see the themes of creation and then marriage and then Satan or the serpent figure. And it looks like the book of Revelation was written where the last three chapters at the end talk about the Satan figure in chapter 20, marriage now between God and humanity in chapter 21, and then new creation in chapter 22. In other words, even the the tail end of the book of Revelation has been connected to mirror the very beginning. So now we have sort of new bookends. And that's part of why I say the the people who are trying to understand what to do with what we call Bible, right? Especially the New Testament. They were noticing these things. There is a reason why they thought some texts should be put together and bound in one book, which we now call uh, the Bible. So part of why I think this is important is... It's not just a given that like anybody who wrote a religious text making claims uh, to Jesus, it's not just a given that that was to be considered scripture and then mounted onto the the top of the Old Testament, right? There were actually literary justifications, for instance, for putting the book of Revelation in what we now call a Bible and in the place in the Bible, which we have it. Gotcha. Cool. This has been another window into how the Bible works. You can find out more about us and this series at almostheoretical.com. 